Just make sure my mic is very firmly turned off when it's time to sing. And that is a great blessing to everyone here. But it needs to get back on again. Good morning. You can turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5. We're starting the Sermon on the Mount this morning. So turn there to verse 5, and we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses here this morning. So once you're there, then I'll ask you to stand for the reading of the Word. And this is God's Word. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And you can be seated. We trust God will bless the reading of his word. So we are looking at now the very beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which uh, includes all of chapters 5 through 7. And this is the first of five sermons that we're going to have recorded in the Bible, uh, five sermons of Jesus. Uh, And you'll notice that the Sermon on the Mount, these next three chapters, set a very, very high bar in terms of Christian living, and we have to come to terms with that. Uh, In fact, the standard is so high that's set in the Sermon on the Mount that people in the history of the church have proposed different ideas um, of what this could possibly mean if the standard is actually that high. One suggestion has been that the standard is so high that the Sermon on the Mount actually does not apply today. It applies only to some future phase or some future age of the kingdom, but it doesn't apply today. Some have suggested that the standard is so high that the sermon isn't really designed to help guide our lives, but it's more just to show us God's character, uh, so we see Him in all His holiness, and then that breaks us uh, to drive us to the gospel. So again, this isn't really a guide for us, it's more just to break us and uh, prepare our hearts for Christ, for the gospel. Uh, And the standard is high indeed, thinks another group of Christians in history, Uh, And so the only way we are going to achieve this kingdom ethic is by withdrawing from the world. So as we set up kind of separatist colonies or separatist communities, uh, we will in fact be able to pull this off. But we have to get out of the world uh, in order to do it. We have to withdraw into isolated communities. And some have also taken these as instructions for a special priestly class. So if you're a monk or a nun or something like that, you could probably pull this off But for carnal Christians, like those of us here, this is just simply not going to work, unfortunately. Okay, and so this uh, brings back this old medieval notion that there's two classes of Christians. There's victorious spiritual Christians, uh, and then there's kind of dirty carnal Christians who do things like get married and have children and have jobs and so forth. And we talked about that at Reformation Sunday. This is not a helpful way to divide Christians. 
Some of these views do have an element of truth in them, but each of them on their own is inadequate. And I think this is a good place for us to think about what is the place of God's law in our lives before we start making application here. Classically, if you're a note taker, you can write this down because I think this is helpful. Uh, and if not, then just pay attention. Um, but classically in Christian thought, God's law has done three things. First is to be a mirror. And so God's law shows us a reflection of who God is. And when that mirror shines against our face, we see that we are dirty. We see that we do not measure up. And so in that sense, the law is designed to condemn us. The law is designed to make us feel the shame that we ought to feel in front of a holy God. uh, And that drives us, of course, to the gospel as we despair of our own righteousness. So the first use of the law is, in fact, to crush us, to serve as a mirror. Uh, The second use of God's law is as a restraint in society. As we are reminded in God's law those things that God thinks are evil, as we hear about that and we're reminded of it, and hopefully we live in a time and in a place where the laws of the nation reflect that, it restrains evil in society. So God's law also acts as a restraint. That's the second use of God's law. Uh, And then lastly, the third use of God's law is as a guide. And this does teach us how to live in accord with God's design. And you've noticed, if you've been here a few times, part of our covenant renewal worship liturgy involves the reading of God's law every week, uh, as well as we receive an assurance from the gospel. And when we're doing that, what we're trying to do is to be intentional about familiarizing ourselves with God's standard, how he calls us to live. Uh, And in the reading of this law, we want it to do all three things. We want uh, it to remind us that we are sinners and we despair of our own righteousness, so we reach out to a savior rather than to count on ourselves. We want it to serve as a standard for society. We pray for our leaders. We want just laws. We want to live in a society that honors God's uh, holiness. And so we want evil to be restrained in the world. And lastly, we do want it to guide our steps. Now, if we've been saved, we're not free to just live however we like. We are to be instructed by God's law. We're to grow deeper in holiness. And God's law serves as a guide and as a template to help us do that. And so law is anything which God instructs us to do, and the gospel is that which God does for us. And the Sermon on the Mount is a kind of law. It is a moral instruction from the mouth of Jesus, and therefore it does serve all three of these purposes that we just laid out. It is a mirror, it is a restraint, and it is a guide. It does all three. And so what we're going to read in these Beatitudes and in the whole Sermon on the Mount is meant to show us the kind of living that pleases God. And this does have immediate application for us right now because we live in an overlapping reality. Yes, we live in a sinful world. Yes, our own hearts are full of sin. But Christ has established a beachhead of righteousness in the world and in our hearts. And so we're living in this overlapping time where we still see the effects of sin, but a new reality is taking shape and will finally be made perfect one day. So it is also a picture of what heaven will be like. The Sermon on the Mount is a picture of heaven. So I want to suggest that the Sermon on the Mount has an immediate application for everyone that's here this morning, and it does in fact serve as a picture of what eternity with Christ is going to look like. So in verse 1, we start, it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So last week, we finished chapter 4, and by the end of that chapter, Jesus had started a public ministry. He was preaching, uh, he was healing people. And so there was obviously a crowd that was aware of his ministry that was following him around. 
And here, that crowd has followed him, and it says that Jesus goes up on the mountain to start preaching. And at first glance, we might think of this just in terms of a practical necessity. If you don't have a, a sound system, as they didn't, if it's just natural acoustics, the, the higher you can get up, the better your voice projects. Uh, and so there is certainly a practical reason why Christ may have done that. But there's also a deeper significance here. If we see the world in the biblical conception of the world, you'll start to notice that there's three tiers or three layers in the world. The Bible frequently talks about below the earth, on the earth, and above the earth. And below the earth is often associated with water, with judgment, with peril, danger. On the earth is our usual dwelling place. That's where we're used to living. And so this kind of describes the normal course of events. And above the earth gives us a glimpse into the heavens, into the place where God dwells. And so it's no mistake that Jesus goes up on a mountain to bring law down from heaven. And this isn't the first time this has happened. In the Garden of Eden, it's evidently raised because there's four rivers that flow out of Eden. And so it's on this mountain where God makes his first covenant with Adam. Noah lands on a mountain after the flood. He's on a mountain when God makes a covenant and gives him law there. And of course, probably the most obvious example of this is Moses goes up on a mountain. He goes up to Mount Sinai in order to receive law from God as he establishes his new covenant era through Moses. And so it's no mistake that now Jesus goes up onto a mountain to start giving instructions, to start giving law from heaven on what the new kingdom, what the new covenant reality is ought, ought to look like. And so in the Bible... Going up on a mountain gives you a glimpse into heaven so you can bring news from heaven back down to earth. And this is why Jesus goes on a mountain. And what should life look like in this new covenant that Jesus has established in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus starts to tell us in the form of these beatitudes. And beatitude is a word that just means blessing or happiness. And this isn't the kind of plastic, shallow, just happy, clappy kind of happiness uh, which is based on circumstance. The kind of blessedness or the kind of happiness or joy that Christ is talking about goes much deeper. It's a blessedness and a joy which serves as a strong foundation even when life is very difficult and when there is suffering. And these are blessings that come to us covenantally. That means as we are in union with Christ. So don't look at this list like a menu, like a group of life hacks. Okay? Uh, and so here's this menu of life hacks. And let's say I go down the list and I would like comfort. And I would... In my own life, I would like approximately 25 units of comfort, okay? So, okay, well, I go across, and then I plunk in my 25 units of mourning in order that I achieve comfort. This isn't a vending machine, okay? This isn't a life hack. These are covenantal blessings that come from being in union with Christ. So think of it more as a description that as we become more and more Christ-like, the blessings of being in union with Christ get richer and fuller and deeper, and blessings and curses in the Bible are always covenantal. They come uh, as a result of being in covenant with God or being a covenant breaker. And it's actually very interesting to notice as Jesus' ministry gets really intense towards the end. In Matthew 23, uh, in one of his final showdowns with the Pharisees, Jesus pronounces seven woes on Jerusalem. Anyone familiar with that? The seven woes that Jesus pronounces on Jerusalem and on the Pharisees actually are the, the photo negative of the blessings of the Beatitudes. Okay, so here there's covenant blessings that are set before the people. By Matthew 23, there's these, the photo negative of this in the terms of covenant curses falls on the Pharisees for being covenant breakers, for being out of fellowship with God. 
Jesus starts in verses 2 and 3. It says, And then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the, poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we all know that material poverty does put us in a position of seeing our need. It, it makes our, our physical need very evident to us. But spiritual poverty does the same thing. It helps to show us how needy we actually are. Being poor in spirit means that we have eyes to see that we actually contribute nothing to our salvation other than the sin which made it necessary. And that's a humbling thought, isn't it? That's what we contribute to our salvation. The fact that it's necessary because I'm a sinner. This is spiritual poverty. This beatitude is another way of preaching the message that John the Baptist and Jesus have already been preaching. And that is that we ought to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance is acknowledging our poverty and our need. And this is how we, in fact, enter the kingdom. This is how we become covenantally bound and united to Christ. And so one question we ought to ask ourselves is, are we trying to gain entrance by our own efforts or by trusting in Christ? And if we're in, if we've gained entry into the kingdom, are we trying to persevere by our own efforts or are we trusting in Christ to supply that need as well? Verse 4, it says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And so following verse 3, this is most likely a reference to mourning over our sin and our inability. And this is a heartfelt repentance, not just a desire to escape the consequences of our sin. And you see both. Uh, There's what's called the repentance of attrition, which is just, I got caught and I want to get out of the consequences. And, you know, sorry, mom, sorry, 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 sorry. I'll never do it again until you're not looking again, okay? That is the repentance of attrition. It's not deep. It's not heartfelt. It just wants to get out of the consequences. Think of Judas. Judas repented this way, okay? He wasn't cut up over his sin. He was cut up over the consequences of his sin. Uh, but then there's also repentance of contrition, which is deep to the heart. This is, I, I see that I have sinned. I've defied a holy God. I repent. I hate my sin not because of consequences. I hate my sin because it's rebellion against God. And this is the kind of, obviously the kind of repentance that we want. It ought to be heartfelt. It ought to be all the way down. We ought to mourn over our sin. And the reason Rock of Ages is one of my favorite hymns is because it captures this mourning so beautifully. When it says, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. That's poverty. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me Savior or I die. That's deep repentance. That's poverty. That's mourning. And yet, even apart from the contextual clue that this mourning has to do with our sin, we do know that in a fallen world, there's also plenty of suffering and pain that is not a direct result of our sin. And Christ does serve as a comfort here as well. Our suffering will one day come to an end. All the loose ends that don't make any sense in a painful and fallen world will be resolved perfectly. Every loose end tied up, every problem solved with no remainder. Looking to the return of Christ in Revelation 21, 1 through 4, this promise comes, and it's a great comfort for many of us. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I, ha- and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. So Christ is a comfort for both kinds of mourning, both the kind that are a result of our sin and those that are not. Then he goes on in verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And meekness is one of those words that requires biblical definition. We live in an age where careful definition is always necessary because there's plenty of people who are willing to fill in their own definition for Bible words and uh, confuse us. I think very often we might associate meekness with uh, weakness or with being passive, okay? kind of being a, a wet noodle. But biblically, meekness is a gentleness which is submitted to God. So it's not a self-serving grasping at power. It's not using your strength to take advantage of another person, to build yourself up at the expense of others. But it does frequently have a very tough side to it, provided it's in submission to God. In Numbers 12.3, it says, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Think about that. So Moses is meek. What were the circumstances in which this is written? Moses has just left the most powerful empire on earth, a smoldering crater. Okay? He destroyed the most powerful man on earth with plague after plague after plague until this man was destroyed. And then he has the audacity to take their treasury and take it out of Egypt with him. And the Bible says this is the meekest man on the face of the earth. Okay? Biblical meekness is not being a wet noodle. It may, in fact, involve a tremendous amount of toughness. But Moses wasn't taking advantage of someone. Moses wasn't self-serving. He was serving the Lord's purposes. So it's his submission to God which is meek, even though there is a very tough side to it. Moses was an instrument. Okay? Moses couldn't call down these plagues on his own. God sent the plagues, but he did it through the channel or through the medium of Moses. So Moses is meek as he submits himself. And just as Moses the meek goes out to lead the people to possess the land God was giving them, now too the meek are promised the earth as an inheritance. It's interesting how earthy the Bible is. It says here the meek shall inherit the earth. Well, wait a minute. Don't the meek inherit heaven? Why earth? But the Bible is often earthy. And you've heard me say this before. I think Probably for many of us who grew up with Far Side cartoons, we uh, subconsciously picked up a lot of our theology of heaven and hell from Far Side cartoons. And as great as Far Side is, I'm not suggesting quit reading Far Side, they really are great. But uh, I think the theology of heaven and hell in those cartoons gets bent. Okay? Uh, so heaven isn't an immaterial, floaty place. It's not the Philly cream cheese commercial with the, the lady there on the cloud playing her harp. That's not heaven. As we just saw already uh, in the passage from Revelation that I read, at the consummation, when Christ returns, what is happening is that we're moving towards a wedding. Two are going to become one. And the divorce between heaven and earth, between a fallen creation and a holy God, is being repaired. And God is coming back to dwell with man on the creation. 
And he's bringing a new creation down with him. So when God destroys the earth, that doesn't mean everything gets vaporized. When God destroyed the earth with a flood, the planet was still here. If you drop a, a pin on Google Maps before the flood and after the flood, it's still there. It looks different. Lots of stuff is different. But the planet, physical reality, doesn't get vaporized in the process. So in this sense, world doesn't necessarily mean the planet, but something more like an era or an age or a system of authority or power. So Noah leaves one world when he gets on the ark and he steps off the ark into another, wor- another world. Okay? So you see how this works? Same planet, different world. See how this works? And we still talk that way to this very day. Uh, if I think of the way my grandpa grew up, he, we say he grew up in a different world. Okay? Well, my cousins still are on that same exact farm. So what do you mean, different world? Well, yeah. Same farm, different world. My cousins have uh, hydroelectricity and robotics and everything else. It's clearly a different era. It's a different stage of development. uh, But it's the same exact farm that my grandpa grew up on. And so when we think about the meek inheriting the earth, we can remember that God is always in the business of conquering and displacing his enemies in order to give the inheritance to his people. So in the final analysis, there's not ultimately a difference in talking about heaven or the kingdom or the resurrection of the dead or the new creation or paradise or inheriting the earth. Ultimately, all these pictures merge into one glorious reality. Paradise is restored on earth to such a degree that even the garden is shadowy by comparison. And I think this is what the psalmist means when he says, He shall have dominion also from sea to sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The meek inherit the earth. In verse 6, it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And hunger and thirst, again, it's language that paints a picture of need. And I think one of the reasons that God made a world in which we get hungry and thirsty is to put a rhythm into our lives to see our need. We're not self-sufficient and we're not self-existent. Another thought experiment. Have you ever stopped? This is one of those things that gets so commonplace we lose the, the mystery of it. Have you ever stopped to think about how weird sleep is? Just think about that. Isn't that the most bizarre thing? God made a world in which we just lay there and do nothing for hours. So every block of 24, we do nothing. Why would God do something like that? That's weird stuff. Why does God do weird stuff like that? Okay? Why do we need food and water? I think it's for the same reason. God makes a world in which we have multiple reminders throughout the day, throughout the year, throughout the month, throughout your lifetime, you name it, that we need resources from outside of us. Okay? We're not self-existent. We're not self-sufficient. And righteousness works just the same way. We can't produce it, but we can receive it. And we'll be satisfied because God gives it to us, just like sleep, just like bread, just like water. We need these things and we receive them as gift. Righteousness is a gift that comes from outside of ourselves, just like bread and wine. In verse 7, he goes on, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And we know that God's mercy is what instigates. So what we don't have here is saying that we... Uh, become saved as we are merciful to other people. So it's not like it's a reward uh, for our mercy that God now decides we've been merciful enough. Now I will 
justify these people. We know salvation is by grace, not by merit. So I think rather what's happening here is that we show we have received mercy by being merciful to others. And the more we see what we have received, the more willing we are to pass it on to our friend and to our neighbor. Uh, and I think Jesus gets to this point even the, uh, in his parable about the unforgiving servant, right? The, the one who is forgiven much uh, ought to be much more forgiving to, to others whose debt he needs to forgive. And there is a legitimate reaping and sowing principle here. God fills us so we can empty ourselves out again. So he can fill us again, so we can empty ourselves again. Okay? If we show mercy, we'll receive mercy back. God will fill us as we pour ourselves out for others. Uh, in uh, Pilgrim's Progress, I think Bunyan has a little quote in there that says, There was a man, they thought him mad. The more he gave, the more he had. Interesting. The more he gave, the more he had. And, and maybe you know people in your own life, uh, I've seen some that seem to demonstrate this principle. Like they're just generous, beyond generous, beyond generous, uh, and it doesn't seem to empty their storehouse. <laughs> How does that work? I think God, I think that's what we see here. God is refilling as we pour ourselves out for others. And some people want to turn this into a formula. So some of the prosperity peddlers will, will latch onto this and say, see, if you want to be really rich, Write my ministry a really big check so God can prosper you. And I think that's getting it upside down. The end goal isn't for us to be sitting on a big treasury of God's gifts, but for us to use those gifts. God gives us so we can give to others, so he can give to us again, so we can give out again. Okay, so this, uh, this reaping and sowing, this filling and emptying is a legitimate pattern. Okay, so I think we can truly say, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It comes back our way. In verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And this really is the essence of all of God's law. It's not ultimately aimed just at external behavior, as important as that is, but at the disposition of our hearts. Have we been born again? And to borrow from the language of Ezekiel, do we have a new heart made of flesh, or do we still have the old stony heart that we were born with? And the kind of heart we have uh, dictates our nature, our desires, what we find beautiful, what we find uh, distasteful, and that will impact our speech and our behavior. And this is why there's such bad news in the Bible about unbelievers uh, being able to do good. <clears throat> uh, we can see that unbelievers, people who are not acting out of the glory of God, can do things which genuinely help other people. If you run a soup kitchen, whether you're a believer or not, someone will actually get fed, and that is good. But if we're not doing it for the glory of God, we're doing it for our own glory. So in this sense, unbelievers cannot do good. That's why the Bible says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Okay, remember that the next time you're an uh, atheist friend tells you, well, I know lots of people who do good. In fact, they're much more moral than Christians. Well, on the surface, that may be. But deep down, that's impossible. Unbelievers cannot do good in terms of moving the needle of righteousness in their standing with God. It's also why the prophet Isaiah doesn't say that it's our evil deeds, but what does he say? Our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. And to give a sense for how earthy and how crude and how crass the Bible sometimes is, these dirty rags, quite literally, are menstrual rags. That's what our righteousness, not our sin, that's what our righteousness looks like to God if it is just out of our own desire to feel good about ourselves or to, to look righteous. So outward righteousness is not the goal. We want this to be internalized. 
Outward conformity can, just as be, can be done just as easily out of self-righteousness or hypocrisy as out of a desire to glorify God. And so this is exactly the point at which the Pharisees went so far off track. Externally, they seemed to be obeying, but they didn't understand the principle behind or underneath the law. And the Bible teaches that in our fallen state, for us to actually see God would be catastrophic. It would be the end of us. God's holy character cannot stand to be in front of sin. We would become undone. So for now, we see God through Christ. That's the only way we can see him. We're we're not holy enough to enter into his presence. So we do it mediated through Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus says that if we've seen him, we've seen the Father, John 14, 9. But in the age to come, in the new creation, in the restored creation, it says we'll be able to see him as he is. 1 John 3, 2 and Revelation 22, 4. In fact, it goes so far as to say in the new creation, we won't even need the sun because the radiance of God's glory will be so much that it will light creation for us. And so the joy of seeing God as he is, is reserved for the pure of heart. We will see him. Those who have been born again by the spirit of God and who live for the glory of God will see God. They really will. In verse 9, it says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. And because Christ has broken the wall which separates us from God, as well as the walls that separate us from each other, it makes sense that we ought to pursue peace in our lives. Uh, And this shouldn't be taken as, again, uh, if we don't fill things in with a biblical definition, people are happy to substitute alternate definitions. Uh, This isn't peace at all costs. Okay, That's not what we're after here. Jesus did not follow that course of action. Peace that comes at the expense of truth will never create peace. Right? Don't say peace, peace when there is no peace. Peace that comes at the expense of truth is compromise, not peace. And it's a guarantee of more war. Okay? We're guaranteed to not have peace if we're going to go that route. Genuine peace, lasting peace, pours out on the earth as we are made right with God. And so the truth of the gospel is the foundation of all peace that we will experience now or in the age to come. But this approach to peace does cause division in other places. Maybe your experience matches mine. Has anyone ever made fun of Christianity in front of you? Has, has that ever happened? Right? Do people mock and misunderstand and, uh, and make jokes and insults about Christians? Sure they do. Okay? So in that sense, it is a dividing line. It doesn't look very peaceful on the surface. So in that sense, the Bible, the gospel, the truth is also a dividing line. And it's not our job to try to edit the gospel or to negotiate the gospel in order to just get rid of all those little ripples. In fact, peace is so valuable that it must be pursued the proper way. And we make peace on earth as we bring the news of the gospel to others and then act graciously towards one another in emulation of how Christ wants us to live in his kingdom. And if peacemaking marks us as sons of God, what does that say for those who disturb the peace? What's the negative of this? If we disturb the peace, how guilty are we? Peacemakers are the sons of God. And if you've been here for a while, again, you know that Trinity is a church which is intentional about thoughtful worship, about doctrinally sound music choices, and about theologically precise uh, teaching and preaching. And these are all done not just for the sake of doing them, but these are all done as an attempt to achieve peace. Okay? This helps prevent conflict. 
We want it for someone from another era of the church to be able to walk in here and say, yeah, I recognize that. That's the Christian church, okay? That's how we create peace. That's how we create lasting unity. We want to enjoy the peace that comes across the history of God's plan of redemption. And we want to self-consciously reject the revolutionary spirit of our own day in an age of novelty and innovation which can only destroy the peace and create division. However, there's a warning for those of us who are more theologically conservative here as well. Uh, And that's that many of us who have an orientation to want to preserve rather than to innovate uh, can get into doctrinal gnat straining, nitpicking, and a cantankerous attitude can set in. And so there's a ditch on either side of this road. Either anything goes will destroy the peace, and gnat straining where it's not necessary can destroy the peace, and we need to be aware of both uh, errors. Verses 10 through 12, it says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And willingness to face persecution and mistreatment for righteousness' sake show that we actually do value Christ and his kingdom above all earthly comfort. And this is, in fact, the history of God's people, both in the Bible and since the Bible was written. It shows itself in many different forms and intensity at different times. For many Christians in history, this has meant imprisonment or possibly even death, martyrdom. For us today, in our own setting, it most often looks like being looked down upon, being mocked, maybe being denied certain opportunities that are only open to the acceptable people who think the right thoughts, which we don't think. And to be an Orthodox Christian nowadays frequently means that we will be misunderstood. And sometimes, let's be fair here, sometimes the misunderstanding is genuine. But almost always it's not. Okay? Almost always people want to misunderstand Christianity, but it can happen unintentionally as well. Increasingly, it seems, we have to be comfortable uh, not being these things, but taking the charge of being bigoted, being narrow-minded, being misogynistic on the wrong side of history, etc. We're going to have to be okay not with doing those things, but with being accused of those things. That's the world we're living in. Uh, And we need to make sure that our behavior uh, leaves it so that the charges don't stick. But the charges will come. They will. They have already in many days. And this is nothing new. In the early days of the church, in the Roman Empire, here's some of the accusations that were made about Christians. And I'll give you a second to see if you can think why these accusations came. They were accused of incest. They were accused of cannibalism. And they were accused of atheism. Now, do you know any Christian who is guilty of these three crimes? I don't. And I don't think they were happening back then either. But this is this misunderstanding that happens, sometimes unintentional, often intentional. How does the charge of incest get there? Well, this couple that's now married, I heard them when they're in their little group of Christians calling each other brother and sister. And now they're married. See? These people are incestuous. They're dirty. They're gross. Okay? That's how you villainize your opponent. You, you, you take something out of context and you make it stick to them. So the early Christians had to face the charge that they believed in incest. Okay? Again, maybe that can help serve as an encouragement when you're called racist, for example. Cannibalism. 
how would they have gotten there? How would this charge have come up? Well, here's what these Christians did. When they'd get up early in the morning and they'd meet in the catacombs, they drank blood and ate flesh. Gross. Unacceptable people who have no place in society. Okay, so not only are they guilty of incest, but these people are also literally cannibals. They have no place in society. And atheism, this is the weirdest one of all. Uh, But if you live in a multicultural society, as the Romans did, uh, and you've got this whole group of gods, for some group to come along and say, no, there's only one true God, that's atheism. You're denying the gods. (laughs) Okay? Uh, and, so we, and this is also careful for us to keep in mind in our own time. The Christians were not persecuted for believing in Christ. Okay? That's not what got them in trouble. The Romans were perfectly happy to leave everyone alone believing in Christ because it was just one more God in their system. They didn't care. They were religiously tolerant like we are. The problem came is when they said Jesus is Lord. That's what got them in trouble. No, no, Caesar has to answer to Jesus Christ. That's what gets you in trouble. We're not just trying to add one more God to the, to the pantheon. We're saying all these other gods are nothing. There's one true God. That's what got them in trouble, is saying Caesar himself must bend the knee to Jesus Christ. That's what they got persecuted for. That's why they were charged with atheism. So we see here, it's not us, but the ungodly who have been on the wrong side of history. So again, these charges will come. Uh, Make sure you're not guilty of them as they come, just as the first Christians were not guilty of these charges. But don't be discouraged by the fact that people will misunderstand and accuse us and persecute us for all kinds of things that we are not guilty of. We're not on the wrong side of history. Christ is promising us the kingdom of heaven, and so our endurance through difficulty is well worth it. What's a few years or a few short decades in light of eternity? And the great cloud of witnesses and martyred prophets who have gone on before us remind us that what we face is absolutely nothing new. In many cases, what they faced was just as intense, or in many cases worse than what we experience today. But no matter the time or the circumstance that we're in, we can see we are not alone. And opposition is nothing new. The more we persevere, the greater the anticipation of our reward in heaven. Uh, And there was lyrics that I noticed this morning to that effect in Christ our sure and steady anchor. I forget the exact words, but (laughs) the the peace will be the better for the storms that we endured. Okay? A few decades is nothing. Eight decades in a fallen world really is a mist of time in light of eternity. And we need to keep that in mind. So the more we persevere, the greater the anticipation of our reward in heaven. And some people struggle with this too, about that we would receive rewards in heaven when this is all by grace. But I love how the early church father Augustine speaks of this. He talks about these rewards in heaven as God crowning his own gifts. That's what our rewards are in heaven. God is now putting a crown on the gifts that he gave us. It's still all by grace, top to bottom. God gives us the grace to persevere and then he rewards the gifts that he's already given us. It's really us who persevere, but it is grace from first to last. And so as we start in the Sermon on the Mount, as we start with these Beatitudes, we see that the final and perfect consummation of God's law and standards uh, will be in heaven. It's waiting for us in the future, in the age to come. But he also shows us what life as kingdom citizens on earth should look like in the here and now as we imperfectly but earnestly put these principles into practice in our anticipation of the return of the King. Let's pray.
Father God, I want to thank you for your law. The psalmist says your law is good. Lord, and it really is. And whether that law comes to us in the form of Moses or the prophets or whether it comes from your son telling us what life in the new covenant is like, showing us what the future looks like and how we can start practicing for it now already as we live on this side of eternity. Lord, I pray that each one here would have eyes and hearts and ears to delight in your law, to see that this is good. This is a reflection of who you are and of your character. Lord, and that as we become more and more conformed to your image, of course we want to walk in these ways. Lord, not out of hypocrisy, not out of self-righteousness, not just in an external way. Lord, but I pray that this would strike us to the heart, that we would do this not for our own glory, but for yours. I pray that as we do that in the context of this church, in our families, as we go out and rub shoulders with others in the world, Lord, I pray that you would give us the grace of perseverance as we endure and as we grow in greater and greater fruitfulness as we await your return. Thank you for your kindness to us, and I pray now that you would drive these truths into our hearts. Amen. So the charge is this. Christ has previously started preaching the gospel of repentance and the kingdom of heaven, and now he fills that gospel in farther as he ascends the mountain as the final and perfect head of the new covenant. He takes the place of Adam, Noah, and Moses as he offers covenantal blessings for those who live for him according to repentance and faith. All the difficulty we endure in this age is redeemed by the promises that await us and have already broken into history. Every loose end is tied up, every problem solved, with no remainder, and every tear is wiped dry. While we await the return of the King, let's be found faithful as we grow in the free grace that spills over into joyful obedience. And may the patterns and habits of our lives show us to be a virtuous bride who is well prepared for the arrival of her husband. And I'll give you the benediction from 1 Thessalonians 3, 12 and 13. And may the Lord, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And amen. Go in peace.